0: Hello listeners, Alex here. Today I am joined by Justin Ling to discuss his book Missing from the Village. Justin Ling is an investigative journalist whose reporting is focused on stories and issues undercovered and misunderstood. His writing has appeared in The Globe and Mail, The National Post, The Guardian, Foreign Policy, and elsewhere. In 2019, he hosted The Village, the award-winning third season of the CBC podcast Uncover, which examined cold cases from the 70s that were reopened as a result of the MacArthur investigation. In 2013, the Toronto Police Service announced the disappearances of three men, Skandaraj Navaratnam, Abdul Bazir Faizi, and Majid Kayan, from Toronto's gay village, were perhaps linked. When the leads ran dry, the search was shut down, on paper classified as open but suspended. By 2015, investigative journalist Justin Ling had begun to retrace investigators' steps, convinced there was evidence of a serial killer. Meanwhile, more men would go missing, and police would continue to deny that there was a threat to the community. In early 2019, landscaper Bruce MacArthur was sentenced to life in prison for the murders of eight men. There is so much more to the story than that. Based on more than five years of in-depth reporting, Missing from the Village recounts how a serial killer was allowed to stalk the city, how the community responded, and offers a window into the lives of these eight men and the friends and family left behind. Telling a story that goes well beyond Toronto and back decades, Justin Ling draws in extensive interviews with those who experienced the investigation firsthand, including the detectives who eventually caught MacArthur, and reveals how systemic racism, homophobia, transphobia, and the structures of policing fail queer communities. Hi, Justin. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I, I... Yeah, so I kind of want to just address right at the top of this interview um, that I think you very much managed to queer the genre of true crime with Missing from the Village. I've read true crime, I've been an active viewer of many true crime documentaries. This is not the first true crime media I've consumed that is about the queer community, but I will say it might be the most empathetic and sensitive towards our community. Um, Was there active effort on your part to make sure this happened, or do you think this is just organically what happens when queer writers and journalists are allowed to tell stories the way they want?
1: No, I I don't think it's organic. I mean, it was very, very intentional. I mean, you know, the way I wrote this book and the way I approached this story, going all the way back to... 2015 uh, came from the perspective that it, it, it came from the perspective of doing journalism, right? I, I think right. what's so fundamentally weird about this is that true crime, I think, often does not try to be journalism. So it begs the question, what is it, right? And and normally the answer to that is entertainment, right? Like it, it is mm-hmm. it is nonfiction for entertainment value. Which, in, in a ton of respect, is totally normal and fine, right? There are true crime books to be written about, you know, Jack the Ripper, or, you know, even at this point, maybe even the Zodiac Killer, or, you know, any number of cases that are in history, or maybe that haven't gotten enough attention, or maybe that, you know, have some sort of bizarre angles to it that you can write about in in, in a pretty... You know, cavalier way that won't really have any negative consequences, and that's fine. That's really yeah. where the genre began. I mean, it was I think it's fair to say it was you know, it was with you know, Jack the the Ripper. I mean, you know, I'll use the word fanfic. Cause that's kind of what it was. It was Jack the Ripper <laughs> fanfic, and. As a genre, that was kind of okay because, you know, there's no living relatives of Jack the Ripper who are still around. It might be a little bit, let's say, uncouth or, you know, vaguely macabre to be laughing or or even joking around or even sort of finding entertainment in a serial killer that operated in London, but because it was so long ago... The the actual consequences of that are pretty minor, but mm-hmm. when that genre started expanding and getting more and more popular and gaining momentum, you saw it expand to a whole bunch of categories of cases that 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 do have real world consequences. And I mean, I think someone like Nancy Grace, you know, with her sort of unhinged right. CNN show, is was one of the kind of early examples of how you could sort of put entertainment in the trappings of investigations and in the trappings of journalism, and while still sort of being this bull in the china shop. And you know, I, I don't think Nancy Grace is all bad. I don't think any true crime is all bad. But I think it has really, really unfortunate consequences. It, it, it runs roughshod over people's privacy. It, it, it invades their life in a way that is really damaging and destructive. It sicks mm-hmm. these fans on them in a way that can be absolutely horrifying. And so I've, I've watched this happen. I've watched this genre sort of um, become a monster over the last decade and I've consciously decided I didn't want to do that. I've covered many you know uh, murder cases, crime cases, including some of the most grisly and horrible and, and sensationalized cases you can imagine and I saw what happened to the People affected by those cases, and I've mm. constantly decided I don't want to be part of that. And and dealing with the MacArthur case, you know, dealing with these disappearances that had been, you know, systematically ignored for years. Talking to those friends and family and members of the community who had experienced this, you know, it, it, I watched sort of in real time what the impact was on them. After MacArthur had been arrested, after this investigation sort of blew up, after the international attention came, and it was really, really tough for a lot of them, understandably so. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was really intentional. I don't think, I think there's definitely members of the queer community, you know, who have been part of the problem you know i've i've heard from you know documentary filmmakers and tv producers who are queer who who reach out to say you know we want to do this story right we really want to get to the heart of the story you know i'm queer mm. you know you can trust me to do it properly and I'll say to them, "Have you gotten buy-in from any friends and family? Does anyone want you doing this? Does anyone right. has anyone asked you to do this? Do you have any sort of buy-in?" And they'll say they'll kind of sheepishly say no. And I'll find out later that they've actually been literally stalking friends and family of right. these victims in a quest to get them to participate. So you know there is there is a real industry behind doing this wrong, and I, I definitely made the conscious decision to, as much as I could to do it right. So, I
0: mean, I guess I'll kind of just jump off that as well. I mean, you do, you mentioned several times in Missing from the Village, especially there is kind of, on literally the last page is one of the best examples of this, um, just just kind of how Missing from the Village and, and how true crime has evolved into an industry of spectator sport. Um, uh, you write, investigations and prosecutions get derailed by media fanfare. I'm curious if you can spin any of that in a positive light. Like, as more and more people consume true crime stories, um, who benefits from it?
1: Listen, I mean, I I think the amount of money and attention that is chasing this has Mm -hmm. absolutely opened the door for cases that would otherwise get forgotten or sort of brushed aside to get this new lease on life, in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's absolutely... Old cold game. You know, there's a great example in San Francisco with, they call him, you know, talking about media sense, sense, sense talk about media kind of fanfare uh, there's a case that they've dubbed the doodler that you of a serial killer who targeted gay men uh, throughout the 60s and 70s in San Francisco who has you know, never been caught and there's you know, actually been speculation in recent years that it may have been a police officer who knew exactly how to navigate the system right. well it was attention from um, you know many of these true crime enthusiasts that sort of reignited interest in the case and and may actually bring us closer to figuring out who did it and some of the living relatives of those Victims, I think, will be very happy uh, to see whether or not there's, there's, there's a resolution to that case. So, I think there's definitely positive outcomes from this. And you know, I'll tell you, doing the village, the village very much sits in the true crime space. Um, as much as I might not always own up to that, you know, the the, the village is a true crime podcast. You know, missing from the village right. is a true crime book. There's really no other way to put it. But you know, I I people have lumped it into sort of this new genre of ethical true crime, I, I think it's a little mm. ill-defined, or sort of responsible true crime. I, you know, I Again, I just call it journalism that's also true crime. But the response to both has been so fantastic that it really kind of leads me to think that everyone in the industry could be doing it this way or variations in this way, and we'd all be better off, right? We, we, could, we could very much... Yeah still produce things that people want to read, people want to watch, people want to listen to, that is, you know, maybe maybe entertaining is not the word I would go for, but at the least interesting and engaging, but that also treats these friends and family of the victims or the victims themselves with respect, with dignity, that doesn't invade their personal lives, you know, that doesn't encourage these these fans, these fanboys and fangirls to start harassing or reaching out to these friends and family or doesn't, you know, in some cases, I, I mentioned in the book, but you have instances where these fans or these online sleuths or self-styled detectives will show up to these people's homes and knock on their door yeah. or worse worse yet, break in. I mean, you, you get instances where people are emailing or phoning or, or texting, you know, with these outlandish theories that, in some cases, try to implicate the the person's, you know, dead friend or family member in the crime itself. Just unconscionable invasions of privacy. You know, I do think it's possible to have an industry without all of that. I do think it's possible mm-hmm. to have a true crime industry as it is, that produces thoughtful work. That tries to shed light on cases that need light shone on them, and that does so, you know, without trying to do more harm than good. There is an absolute need for more attention paid to crimes, particularly homicides, particularly hate crimes, missing persons cases. Um, that that would benefit enormously from more attention, from more money, from more mm-hmm. podcast, books, you know, TV shows. But unfortunately, that still isn't really happening. You're still seeing, you know, unbelievable amounts of money put into, you know, the twentieth installment of a John Benet Ramsey investigation, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Into another piece on, you know, the Zodiac, for example. You know, there's so much money that chases the sort of high profile cases, and still a real lack of attention paid to um, smaller cases that have been forgotten or, or you know, never really properly investigated in the first place. Um, you write in the chapter titled Dean
0: and Saroosh, it takes all my effort not to stand up and wrap Sarah in a hug as her eyes well with tears. It's not something a journalist is supposed to do. And it's probably why I am, by my own admission, a terrible interviewer. I don't enjoy probing the worst moments of people's lives. And I often find myself holding back to avoid causing pain. Um, I'm curious, uh, from your perspective, when does it feel acceptable to not hold back during what could be an emotionally painful interview?
1: I think it depends. I mean, listen, you know, I think in an interview itself, you do have to sort of sit there and be a bit stoic. I mean, Mm -hmm. because otherwise... It's not just for the sake of preserving this sort of sense of independence, it's also because you don't want to create a false sense of security for the person being interviewed, right? If I if I sit there and start, you know, hugging the person I'm interviewing and patting on the back and saying, it's okay, it's okay, mm-hmm. and trying to be their friend, they're going to suddenly, they may blur that line between, you know, the fact that I'm a journalist and not their friend, right? They might start saying things that they would not otherwise say. I don't want to create that false relationship, Both for their benefit and my own, right? I don't want them to think that they are, you know, that that I'm the shoulder to cry on. You know, I want Mm -hmm. them to realize at every moment that I am, you know, going to take what they tell me and potentially, you know, put it in a newspaper or a book or on a podcast. It's really important to preserve that that wall both you know for their own safety now that's not that's not to say you have to be a complete soulless you know asshole they've certainly right. you know <laughs> given a big hug to some of these people and you know when i've seen them at you know uh, court hearings or at memorials absolutely but in that interview you do have to put up some level of a wall or else you could you know, really get them in trouble and and it's a really difficult thing to do i don't like doing it, i have never liked doing it, when people, you know, cry on the phone to me, it is really, really a difficult thing I, I really do not look forward to, and I often really despise in the moment, but, you know, it's a necessary part of the job, but it's also, you know, a question of, 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 of tactics, right? You know, not every journalist is the same, I, I think we all have to operate on on roughly the same ethics Code, I think it's really important. Really, you know, that's what makes us journalists, and and really, you know, not much else. But I, I, you know, I think there's a pretty wide latitude as to how you want to operate. You know, there are journalists who will sit there and and you know sit on the same side of the booth as as you and, and put their arm around you and, and say they're there. Um, and there are journalists who will sit there with a, you know a stoic gaze and, and and never blink an eye even as you're breaking down and, and weeping you know there there's definitely a need for different styles and tactics and you know methods, and I think we're all you know, constantly trying to figure out exactly kind of where we fit on that spectrum, but you know I uh, definitely don't love uh, you know having to you know sit across somebody who's who you know, is re- reliving the worst day of their life. Mm. There's a passage in the chapter, Andrew and Salim, during
0: a community gathering at the 519 Center that reads, This was a battle-worn crowd. There were older guys, men who likely remembered the riots and protests of the 1980s. There were younger queer people who had been active in recent years, advocating for justice for marginalized groups. There were transgender and poverty advocates who had spent years shining light on police brutality, poverty, transphobia. It was a wealth of experience and activism, riches of frustration and anger. Um, A good amount of these people are there to rally together after Andrew Kingsman goes missing. And later in the book, you address something I think is really critical to the story. Um, You write that to be prioritized as a missing person, you need social capital. Uh, You write here, many tried to explain this phenomenon. It took a white guy to go missing for police to care. It's a sentiment I appreciate. You write, but it's wrong. Can you talk a bit about this statement on social capital and what it
1: meant for the case overall? Yeah, I mean it, it's a tricky thing because you know, it's objectively true that really there was not enough attention paid to this case until a white guy went missing. You know that is objectively true, um, mm-hmm. but it was also it also I think kind of smooths over who Andrew was. You know who this white guy was. I mean he wasn't just any white guy off the street, and in fact it, it, it erases the fact. That, that an earlier victim, Dean Liswick, was also white, but mm-hmm. Dean was street involved, he was a sex worker, he had struggled with addiction issues over the years, and he was a white guy who, you know, maybe most insulting of all, went missing and, and was never even registered missing. You know, police didn't even know he was gone. The community, yeah. you know, the, sorry, the, the 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 city didn't recognize him as gone, even though people in the community, you know, I think knew he was missing. Um... You know, Andrew Kinsman was different because he was a guy who knew how not to just uh, navigate the state, but also knew how to challenge it. You know, he was a guy who was involved in HIV/AIDS uh, work and advocacy and activism for years. He was a guy who was critical of how police and the state handled you know issues around queer people, around sex work, around addiction. You know, he was a guy who. Really made himself loud and and sort of present and and was able to do that most critically and he was of course surrounded by people who who were very much the same, right people mm-hmm. who knew that the state you know would not care unless they made it care and they were critical in in breaking this right you know i i I write yeah. it in the book and I really believe it i don 't think Bruce MacArthur would have been caught when he was if not for the really hard work of of andrew kinsman's friends and family and you know at one point one of them put a really fine point on that to me and basically said they were told by the cops that some security footage probably would have been deleted crucial security footage that led to his arrest would not have been available if they had waited just a few more days and the cops were certainly likely to wait a few more days if they had not been pressured and strong-armed into giving a shit by these friends and family. So it is, it, is, it is really important to recognize it was not just like the police snapped into action when a white guy went missing. It took yeah. the community really standing up and, and, and applying pressure for that to happen. But also, you know, this narrative erases the work that was done by the friends and family of other missing men. You know, one of the first men to go missing, Abdul Basir Faizi. His his wife and kids, you know, called at the police, lobbied them, you know, annoyed them, pestered them, walked into the village themselves despite knowing nothing about the village. and went door to door asking for 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 answers. Um, you know, uh, Krishna, uh sorry, um uh, Skander uh, friends and family were incredibly vocal. They put up posters everywhere. Um, you know, they they they, they hectored the police They went to the media. Um, Ditto for um, several other of of the missing men. Um, You know, Suresh Mahmoodi's wife, despite not really speaking English, did her best to try to reach out to the police and, 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 and convince them to care. So... We actually don't, I'll, I'll do one more. You know, Slemmesen's husband aggressively, aggressively tried to make the police it, you understand how abnormal his disappearance was, and the police turned around and tried to accuse him of being responsible, despite having zero evidence for it. So, you know, it's it's a really difficult and fraught thing, without a doubt. Andrew Kinsman's whiteness. You know, made him more of a priority for police. There's, there's no escaping that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think people who, you know, who, who, who kind of used that line understand just how close we were to having his case ignored as well. The police baseline for this was gay men pick up and leave, gay men disappear, especially brown gay men. Just, just they go back home with the line I kept here. They go back home. Maybe they went back home, despite the fact that home was Canada, home was Toronto, home was the village. So yeah. it's a really complicated issue. It is undeniable that racism, homophobia, xenophobia, all involved, but it, it really laid bare just how much you need an advocate for this to work. And even then you don't have a guarantee In the chapter titled The Arrest, you write, While some
0: accused criminals' social media pages are sparse or non-existent, maybe spartan by design, MacArthur's Facebook page is busy. Later in the chapter, you also write the chilling nature of social media superficially let MacArthur cultivate a selective image of himself, a loving father, partner, member of the community. MacArthur had the ability to present himself as a well-connected, well-liked, normal person. Normal, unassuming, avuncular. Can you talk here um, just a bit about the role social media has? just as both a trove of potentially useful information and a possible trove of misinformation. How do you or does or, or how does any investigative journalist vet information that comes from this kind of new
1: source? Yeah, it, it's, it's a difficult one. I mean, it's one I, I think I've gotten particularly good at handling social media over the years. You know, I've, I've dealt mm. with just an... The uh, deeply fraught number of mass shootings and, and domestic terror attacks and, and, and right. you know, uh, killings and whatnot—that that, you know—you have to get really good at navigating social media, figuring out which what, what page is real, which page is fake, uh, what is on there to throw people off, what's on there to, you know, in all earnestness, um, you know, what's on there in an attempt to sort of glorify their their their, their work or their killing or, their, or their, their, their deeds, and what stuff is on there—they really gives an insight into their their frame of mind. And, you know, MacArthur's page was earnest to a, to a fault. But it was very interesting to watch some of my straight colleagues pick up not just on the social media pages, but also on some of his dating profiles and and spin them as as a window into his soul without really appreciating the culture behind some of these dating profiles in particular. Right. You know, I think we, we at The Golden Mail were the first to write about some of those dating profiles, and you know, I agonized over every detail we included, every detail we didn't, um, you know, wanted to, to really, you know, not try and, for example, sh- you know, shame the BDSM community into the implication that they are somehow um, naturally violent, which, of course, is a trope right, that is right. just kind of, a, you know, offensive. Um, but also, you know, on, the, on the flip side of that, to not play up these these smiling, you know, avuncular Facebook You know, photos with his uh, you know grandkids as as sort of a a juxtaposition in opposition to the crimes he committed. Right? Because just because you're a a pleasant and and loving grandfather does not mean you can't also be a serial killer and a monster. Um, So. And one really doesn 't have any relation to the other, so trying to find that 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 middle ground that where you know you can sort of use all of that information that goes online as informing who he is and how he may have met his victims and sort of who he was, but not using it to sort of try and smooth over or excuse or um, sort of run contrary to the things he did. And I like to think we we managed to to toe that line relatively well, maybe not perfectly, but well enough. And unfortunately, many other people in the media didn't do that. There were mm. constant headlines, um, you know, about his his sort of you know normalcy, you know, the kind of guy next door vibe uh, that we you know, did I think with Jeffrey Dahmer and a bunch of others. But also, you know, not trying to 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 you know read too much into his. His sex life, as though you know, a, a, a sort of abnormal sex life is indicative of being a serial killer. Because of course it's not. Um, it's a really difficult thing. And I think the really at the end of the day, you have to take social media and someone's internet persona as a data point, but not the data point, right? And um, you know, people can be very different online than they, than they are in person. And I think Bruce MacArthur is a prime example of that. Um, and I think you know, there's a level of laziness. That goes into just trying to build a profile of someone based exclusively on what you find online because that rarely tells the whole story. Sometimes it's necessary when you're trying to Mm -hmm. rush out a story in the hours after something's been committed. Um, But it, it it is not a complete picture.
0: As kind of social media is this thing that we're all very much exposed to now, do you find, because, I mean, you do have a history in this field, Uh, you've been working it for a while now, do you find it's easier, getting easier, or getting kind of more difficult to vet that
1: information? It's getting more difficult, largely because we're seeing more and more younger people. um, I mean, and and this is largely true for, you know, mass shootings, domestic terror attacks in particular, but... You know, for example, the um, the mass shooting, the, the seemingly inspired by you know this, this this white supremacist, great replacement theory that occurred in Buffalo recently. You know, the school shooting that that happened in Uvalde, Texas. Um, yeah. These are instances where either you had very very little social media profile, or in an intensely manicured one that was really designed to sort of outlive the shooter or the, the attacker or the perpetrator or the alleged attacker in some cases. And it it makes it really different. It makes it really um, hard to, it's making it harder and harder to sort of base a profile uh, of somebody, especially when they may not have had much of a social life outside the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's leading us to circumstances where we just kind of have to say, we don't really know who this person was. I, you know, I think the Las Vegas shooter from a few years ago, one um, right, of the right. probably, I think, still the the worst domestic uh, mass shooting in in U.S. history, or the second worst. Um, we really don't know much about the guy. I mean, he was a loner who had a couple of close uh, personal relationships and a social media profile that was, you know, bland or or basically non-existent. And I think you are yeah. going to see more and more of that. I think the internet and social media, uh, you know, had certainly a really critical role in helping us understand some of these people for a time. I think that utility is going to decline somewhat in you going forward. You, these people are getting better at learning how to scrub. Um, their social media histories or worse yet build a social media history designed for the news after they do what uh, you know what they're planning to do
0: i do want to talk a bit about your decision to write missing from the village mm-hmm. um after the investigation had ended you do write at one point in the in the book uh there isn't much more i can do journalism a lot of time is the art of moving on clearly not the case here. Um, I assume that by the time you started the book, the case had been solved, the articles were out, the podcast mm-hmm. was underway. Uh, following and writing about the entire years long investigation sounded like a personally strenuous period for you. I've spoken before to authors and kind of specifically fiction authors about this, um, but on the subject of not re traumatizing yourself through your work. Did you find that compiling this book was a re-traumatization
1: or was it a way for you to find some peace? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think you know trauma for me was really came into it. I mean, my calculus in deciding whether or not to do this book really turned on the, the idea of you know do other people want me doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And at first, my mindset was you know I have interviewed the people involved to ad nauseum at this point, most of them are tired of hearing from me. A couple have already said, listen, I've, I I can't give you any more. I've given you enough. I need to move on with my life. And I had to respect that. And that was sort of my, my mindset. You know, I I don't want to do the book. People don't want me to do the book. I don't see the benefit. It was, it was really, um, you know, a, a conversation with some colleagues and eventually my, my agent eventually my, my, my would be publisher. Um, who kind of hit home that if I don't do it, someone else is going to. And mm. whoever does it, whoever else does it, will probably, frankly, do a less good job. <laughs> and 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 that was sort of it. You know, like, I thought to myself, if I don't, I can kind of imagine the short list of people who... Um, we're, we're, we're likely to get that contract and who are likely to go to go do the book. And, and I, you know, I, I can only imagine how much worse it would be to have all those people get their phones, have their phones ringing, for, you know, for the, you know, 100th time about this. And, you know, I kind of came into it also with a mindset of, you know, I'm not going to do this like every other true crime book that I know people have done. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and come into this where I say from the outset, there's going to be some people who don't want to talk to me and I'm not going to try to talk to them. There's going to be some mm-hmm. people... Who, you know, I have to approach gingerly, or who I've kind of give, you know, their own space to to speak to me as as they see fit, and and, it I think in the end it made for a better book, right? You know, it, it maybe it's not the complete, the most complete book. I think there's probably gaps in it, you know, but that's I kind of just live with that, and that was sort of fine for me, and um, and I I don't think I I know not everyone was happy with it. You know, I also certainly had to field complaints from a handful of people mentioned in the book Mm. and I'm still fielding them in some cases and I tried my best to to sort of reconcile as as best I could you know one case um, we actually did a a somewhat substantial rewrite of a section between the hardcover and the paperback I had sort of misrepresented just due to a lack of information Um, the man who was attacked by MacArthur in, in 1999 um who I think had lost some agency in the whole process and who sort of reached out to say, you know, I want that agency back. I want to be able to tell my own yeah. story. I'm tired of having everyone tell my story through court documents, right? So, you know, let's yeah, I I went and sat in his apartment for, for quite some time and we kind of chatted through what happened and his story was way more interesting than I think I had I had really um, you know, described in the book. So, you know, I, I think I'm happy with how the book came out you know it certainly was a t- it was a tough thing to write, but you know i'm I'm the the least of all victims here um and and you know I know it was tough to go through it for a lot of the people I spoke to for it but also as much as I could I tried to rely on you know past interviews i didn't I didn't feel the need to go and, and necessarily redo a bunch of interviews with these people because I'd been working on it for so long they already had so much stuff compiled. That in some cases, you know, I, I just sort of said, you know, I sent them an email saying the book's coming out. We've already talked. If you want anything, you want to add anything, great. If you don't, we don't need to do this again. You know, we don't have to do this interview for the yeah, you know the yeah, third yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was a there was a big uh, help for a lot of people. So in the end, I, you know, I'm really happy that the book came out. And I'm happy I, I did it. And I'm kind of even more happy that no one else did it instead. Do you kind of feel the same way
0: is that sentiment shared? Um About the podcast, I mean, you say like CBC was pitching me on the idea of a podcast. I was doing everything I could to say no. But in the end, you did host two full seasons of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Was that kind of the same thing where it was a matter
1: of if I'm not telling this story, somebody else is going to be do it potentially worse? there's a really strange thing and that there's a whole bunch of negative reviews to the podcast so I shouldn't say a whole bunch so we, I, sh- <laughs> I should point out the podcast is incredibly well reviewed. Um, but the, the negative reviews are almost unanimously I was told this would be a podcast about a serial killer and I didn't expect a history lesson and I, you know, I laugh at them because I, we were <laughs> when I pitched the show, that's exactly how we described it. you know I, I basically said let's promise them a show about the serial killer rip from the headlines but you know let, let's let's give them a history lesson. And it was supposed to be a bait and switch, right? You know, we we mm-hmm. the first two ep- the, the first two episodes and, and the last episode are really the only ones that deal with the Bruce MacArthur case. The rest is, is a history of of the of the queer movement in Canada, of a, a series of unsolved homicides and disappearances going back some forty years, uh, nearly fifty years in some in some cases. You know, the point of the podcast was was very much to try and take the sort of interest that had been garnered around this case and to, you know, grab that spotlight and swivel it back to, you know, the sort of forgotten era, you know, to a history that I wasn't even aware of when I started working on it, to a history that a lot of queer activists and queer folks weren't even aware of, to details that even people involved in the story that we spoke to weren't aware of. And so, you know, the the podcast is... Really, only notionally about the MacArthur case. Yeah. Um, I, I think we certainly do it justice. I, I, I hope. I hope we do. Um, I think there's there's some real pieces of police accountability there that we really drill down into. That I I, I can only h- hope. Have made a difference in the grand scheme of things, um, but you know, we uh, what I said from the beginning when I told the CBC is I'm not interested in retelling the story. I'm doing a book. There are documentaries in the works. You know, I've written about this ad nauseum for the Globe and Mail. I don't want to just do the story in another format. I want to bring it somewhere else. I want to do something else with it. And I, I really think that's what we did. And I was really, really happy with it. And you know, season two was a continuation of that idea. Yes, we continued to sort of focus on the uh, review that went into the, the, the systemic and absolute failures of the Toronto Police Service. But we also use that as, as a springboard to talk about um, the, the sort of parallel failures of the Toronto Police Service when it comes to trans women and, and violence against mm-hmm. trans women, particularly the case of Alora Wells, which uh, happened, uh, her disappearance happened around the same time as the MacArthur investigation and, and you know, remained unsolved and remains unsolved to this day, largely right. because of gross unbelievable incompetence, willful incompetence in some cases on the part of the Toronto police service.
0: Okay, I do want to kind of jump off of that though because I like one of my questions in here, one of my statements is that I mean I don't know, maybe multifaceted wouldn't be the word I would use, but you clearly have opinions on the police that aren't always bad. Uh, towards the end of the book, you write, Police officers are not Swiss army knives. They cannot fix every problem. Their core jobs of police are to keep the peace, collect evidence, and lay charges. Later you write, It's time to open this work to non-officers, bring in social workers and outreach officers uh, to engage with communities, especially marginalized ones, when you are talking about um, missing persons cases. Mm -hmm. There's also a call to defund the police later in that chapter. Um, But at the end of the day, you do have sympathy at several points in regards to some officers who really are trying to do good work. Um, Though you also obviously acknowledge it clearly took too long for connections in this case to be made. You write it was eventually solved due to, quote, good policing. Um, Why do you think this sentiment is
1: so easily erased in defund the police narratives? Well, you know, here's the deal. I mean, you know, the defeat, defund the police narrative rarely talks about ho- homicide police, and, and nor should it, right? I mean, you know, right. I think if you were to make a list of the core things we expect from our police, solving murders is number one, right? Like, you know, I, I think we, with all of a world, and I think, you know, core to the sort of abolish the police sentiment is a world where there is no homicide, where we've, you know, fixed society to the point where we don't need police. And I think that is a, a lovely idea. And it's not really my place to, to sort of talk in those utopian terms. And that, that's fine stuff my job, Um, but and there's nothing wrong with that of course, there's nothing wrong with fighting for a utopia Um, but at the end of the day, defund the police you know, let's defund the things that aren't working let's defund the things that are making things worse that can involve uh, a lot of drug operations, you know I've spent enough time covering drug investigations to tell you that the vast majority of them are unbelievably wasteful and it really creates cycles of poverty and violence that only make society worse. Um, you know, a, a lot of street level policing can be good, but it can also be a way of of, of demonizing and stigmatizing and, and criminalizing marginalized communities. Uh, morality mm-hmm. policing, which continues to this day in a new form, I spent a lot of time talking about it in the book in the podcast. Morality policing has evolved from um, you know busting up gay bars into busting up brothels, or right. you know targeting street level sex work, or you know harassing people who are homeless. Uh, morality policing is. a a way of, of keeping people down in many respects. We want to talk about defunding the police, all of these things should be prime targets. But you know the consequence from that should be, yes, probably an overall reduction in the police budget, but also a substantial I think frankly we need a substantial reinvestment in the critical parts of policing, like homicide. Now, I point out in the book that in the mid-'70s and-'80s, the morality units, the ones that busted up the bathhouses, were resourced at about a 5-to-1 ratio over the homicide unit. So it meant that people in the community, in the queer community, were being beaten and criminalized by a very well-financed unit that was hell-bent on putting them back in the closet... But when they get murdered, the homicide detectives who were dispatched to investigate the case often had to juggle you know, three or four other homicides that week and would often you know, leave it in a filing cabinet because they did not have the personnel or the equipment or resources to properly investigate. And that, mm. that, that reality has continued to present day, and it's unconscionable. We have systematically seen homicide solve rates go down across North America over the last decade. Why? Because we're putting resources into things that don't work. And there's a really great book, I think I mentioned it briefly in mine, called Ghetto Side, but Jill Levoy. And mm-hmm. she breaks this down. It's predominantly, she goes into predominantly black communities to sort of interrogate this problem. And she finds, basically, homicide detectives whose jobs are thwarted by the sort of bull in a china shop operations from their drugs and gangs colleagues. You basically see two different arms of police, one making the problem worse, and the other trying and failing to clean it up. So I am complimentary of the work that many homicide officers do, because at the end of the day, their mandate is to arrest Murderers, and we should. That's what we should do. Um, you know that needs to be a core objective of our police force. And unfortunately, it's no longer the first priority. Our police forces have become these sort of, you know. Cure alls that are, are meant to tackle every symptom of poverty and racism and, and and sort of social dysfunction, and they're they're making everything worse. We need to get back to sort of first principles in policing, and that needs to involve you know doubling down on on good homicide investigations. And I can tell you, there were there are great officers. Who worked on the MacArthur investigation? Mm-hmm. Um, and there were actually a couple of one or at least one or two great officers who worked on the Laura Wells case, and great officers who worked on these cold cases from the seventies or eighties. But they were consistently either not supported by the higher ups, frustrated by the work of incompetent and terrible colleagues, uh, or were, were you know were, were were shot down by the brass in the upper levels. So. I I think we need to figure out how to empower those good officers who really just want to keep people safe and want to keep dangerous folks off the streets, Mm -hmm. um, and who want to work closely with those communities, who want to listen to them. We need to tackle the officers who don't want to do that, and we need to go after uh, that middle management and and the top brass who just are no longer interested in that sort of work. Okay, I think uh, this is going to be my last question. It
0: it might be a bit of a spicy note, too. Mm. Uh, We'll find out. Um, I am curious on your thoughts, um, about. Red X by David Demchuk. Uh, For those unaware, Red X is a piece of queer fiction that was heavily influenced by the Bruce MacArthur murders, um, albeit with a bit of a twist. MacArthur isn't really mentioned or featured in the novel at all. Instead, vulnerable gay men are targeted in Toronto's gay village by something more supernatural. Um, I've interviewed Demchuk. He said that Red X was really a way for him to write on the subject that he was deeply affected by. Um, But I'm curious about your thoughts on fictionalizing something that was very real. Um, do you think a fiction author
1: has a different responsibility
0: to the story than a nonfiction author would?
1: I have to confess, I, I haven't read David's book, and I, I, if he's listening, I'm sorry, David. Uh, it's, my, my interest in in sort of consuming content around this, around MacArthur and this investigation is, went, went off a cliff once I finished the book. Um, so apologies to him. But frankly, I think it's, I think generally speaking, as long as it's done sensibly, it's great. I mean, I, I mean... The queer community, in particular, takes tragedy and and fictionalizes it. I think to great effect. I mean, you know, the amount of really impactful work that came out of the AIDS crisis, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I, I think is 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 a really kind of potent example of how the queer community, in particular, is, is so good at trying to sort of make sense of of this horror, in some cases, of government inaction, of uh, you know, these outside forces that seem hell-bent on attacking us and doing so in a way that is, I think, a way of healing, a way of sort of making sense of it all. I think, you know, sort of fictional work like that is, is, is super, super important. And frankly, I think there should be more of it. One thing that's always sort of bugged me in working on the story going back to the 70s and 80s is just how little sort of uh, you know work, creative work, came out of the bathhouse raids um, right. in 81, came out of these murders in, in the 70s that have been largely forgotten, came out of this, the police brutality, uh, that came out of the other, you know, raids, the, you know, the, the the attack on the body politic, you know, one of the most uh, offensive uh, assaults on the free press in, you know, in modern Canada, um, you know, the Pussy Pallets raids later on. Yeah. sex garage raids in Montreal you know there, there's so many examples where you know the queer community came under attack and I really looking back thought there'd be this this outpouring of creative work fiction nonfiction that would come as a result that would try and sort of not just make sense of it but also memorial memorialize it and commemorate mm. it and I just haven't really seen that there's some examples there's some some great exceptions to that um, but it's actually really bothered me how bad we've been at, at sort of making our own history so you know I think again as long as they're sensibly done as long as there's some level of, of anonymization there as long as there's um, you know no, no sort of gross caricatures of the people who've been affected by this which I don't mm-hmm. think David did um, yeah, I think it's great I think it's a really objectively good thing and I, I think there should be more of it amazing well thank you
0: alright Justin thank you so much for joining me today this was a great interview um, I can't wait to see what you work on next and we will be following you closely thanks so much